Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. And today we are pleased to have back on the show Stephen Sinise, coming to us from Cabarita Beach, New South Wales, Australia, to further discuss his book False Flag, Jack the Ripper, which is an expanded edition of his book of last year, Jew Bader, Jack the Ripper, New Evidence and Theory. And tonight we're going to delve more into the person of George Hutchison. Welcome back to the show, Stephen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good evening to you in Kansas. Good morning to you in Australia. <laughs> the, um, the yellow brick road leads straight to Oz this evening. It certainly does. <laughs> now, one of the questions I was not able to pose to you last time we spoke is just the general um, new guest question I ask all of the first-time guests, and that is, what made you interested in the Whitechapel murder case? Uh, I've always, I've, I've been interested uh, since childhood, um, particularly, um, I think, around about the age of 11, 12, um, I saw a special panel um, broadcast from the United Kingdom. I think it may have been BBC television or Thames television or something and there was a, a group of panellists and they were discussing the show and I, I just found it absolutely fascinating. I, I think part of the reason was I, I've always been very interested in uh, history and it was a time when Australia was still quite isolated. Uh, so, you know, this story um, set in the, in, the, in the London slums, this dark, ugly story, uh, it, it just had a fascination that I suppose didn't couldn't compete. Uh, the, the everyday practicalities of, of life in Australia those days was couldn't compete with, with with a story like that, and it just pulled me in. Um, and intermittently, I, I kept reading. Um, I just kept reading on the case, um, anything and everything I could get my hands on, um, any uh, videos I could I could watch, documentaries, and so. It continued uh, to evolve from there, but um, as as I mentioned in the last program, once once I got my hands on uh, some of those more academically focused articles, uh, giving an idea of what the United Kingdom and London in particular was like in the eighteen eighties, I started to see certain aspects of the story uh, jump out at me. But for all of that, uh, there was no <clears throat> there was no particular engine uh, that, that that drove me anywhere until uh, my daughter, who was in Year Nine at the time, and she was studying history, and she was very fortunate because she just changed schools, and she was in a very tiny class that actually did history as a subject, um, and the teacher had put together this unit or there was a unit available for the study of uh, modern history that looked at Victorian times or late Victorian times through the issue of the Jack the Ripper murders and the Whitechapel murders. And they, it was really fascinating stuff because it, it really anchored uh, the story in, 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 in such an interesting historical context that I thought, wow, how, how, how lucky are these kids? You know, they're, they're 14 years old and they're getting an understanding of the case within the historical reality of the case, which, you know, is something that's always spoken 
uh, quite quite strongly to me. And at a certain point towards the end towards the end of the of the semester, when they had needed to wrap up uh, this this unit of study, that as an assignment they were asked um, to uh, pick pick a suspect and uh, put together their arguments. Uh, in favour of one suspect or another. And my daughter asked me because she knew that I was interested in the case. And I thought, look, look I, I really don't particularly have any suspects, uh, but if if you're doing an assignment for the sake of doing an assignment and keeping it interesting and engaging with the question, I think George Hutchinson is as good a suspect as any other suspect. But that was not said with any particular conviction. Um, and she said, okay, well, you know, can you point me in the right direction? Can you, can you give me some pointers? Can you? And I said, look, off the top of my head, I can't. I've got a couple of books in the library shelf there with, with, with Hutchinson. I've got about a couple of dozen others that have got other suspects. Help yourself. But anyway, she, she sort of pestered me a little bit. And I decided to do, uh, an Australian specific search online. And what had happened was, unbeknownst to me, that just in the six to nine months previous, there'd been a dump of um, Victorian era, late Victorian era uh, prison records uh, detailing, you know, violent crimes and sexual crimes and so forth. And it just so happens that it, it threw up this particular George Hutchinson. Um, and... I, you know, I, I had a look at the dates and I had a look at the age and I had a look at the the, the particulars of this individual, the, the physical characteristics and, you know, the moment that he arrived and, and I just thought, you know, this, this has got to be someone playing a hoax. This, you know, I was, I was about 75% convinced that someone was playing a hoax on Ripperology because it was just, it was, it just fit too well. And I thought, okay, um, that, that, that's all very interesting, but, you know, it, 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 I'm, I'm, not, I'm not entirely convinced. So what I actually did was, in the first instance, I, um, I, I wasn't a member of Casebook. In fact, I'm still not a member of Casebook. I'm using my daughter's account when I occasionally go in there and have something to say. And um, I, I, I sent a couple of emails to the, the casebook forums, um, just saying, look, um, is there any way I can I can get in touch with uh, Gary Rowe? Because I've got some information which may or may not be interesting, but could you get back to me? And, and I, I didn't get any answer. And um, I, I, I sent sent at least two emails, and I didn't get any answer back from casebook. And the the the, the, the moment I realised that I wasn't going to be getting a, an answer from casebook, I thought, oh crap. You know, I'm, I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to look into this. I'm going to have to verify whether this is just, you know, someone playing silly buggers or whether there's anything to it. So I got down to Sydney. I went to the state archives, which are, which are in Kingswood, which is uh, about 50 kilometres west of Sydney. They've relocated. And lo and behold, um, there, there really was this George Hutchinson character that arrived of a particular age, that was born in England, et cetera, et cetera, that had committed these, these, these sex crimes, who really 
you know, we, we and, and you know that that looked the way he did, and the physical description was consistent. And uh, I was then able to verify um, some of those initial records against uh, newspaper accounts and so forth. And and my brother was very helpful in going down to the Mitchell Library in Sydney to to verify some of that information. So I came out of that process, and I thought, okay, well, that's not. This isn't this isn't someone sort of poking their tongue at ripperology or, or or having a bit of fun. Um, this is very interesting, and 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 it sort of went and it went from there. And um, I touched base with Adam Wood. I, I gave him a call and I said, "Look, I've, I've found this information and so forth." And and so I started putting together that original article that uh, appeared as a preview. Because basically, I was still writing it as it as it went to as it went online that um, that original preview, and it was about fifty percent of of what appeared in the the full October edition of Ripperologist, which was one forty six, um, and um, you know things 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 went from there, both in terms of my research, and I'm also aware because my daughter was sort of um, keeping tabs on some of the conversations that were going on. Online and uh, the 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 I, I'm aware that the, the issue of the mariner there, the, the fact that he was or wasn't a mariner, uh, sort of cropped up on the on the message boards. Mm-hmm. Um, however, that was before the final article came out, the font which which actually explained the context of the the dock strike and so forth. Because in the preview article, it had just been a very rudimentary explanation of the discovery of this of this evidence, as it were, and so the, the the broader article, the full article, then goes into some detail about the dock strike and puts things into some context and so forth. And from that moment, after the publication of one forty six, uh, there was no more. That sort of quelled all discussion, um, or at, or at the very least, that people seem to lose interest. I'm, I'm not sure which of the two, <laughs> um, but. From from what my daughter was able to ascertain in those immediate weeks after 146 came out, um, all the the impetus to respond had sort of uh, uh, satiated itself with the preview edition, which I suppose is a little bit unfortunate because um, it, it would have been good if that sort of discussion within Ripperology itself had happened after. The, the full edition came out, but maybe the fact that there was no discussion in and of itself is not a, is not entirely a bad sign. But so that's that's the way that um, George Hutchinson uh, came by my door, as it were. But uh, you know, I, I I can't stress enough. I didn't go looking for him, and and I tried, and I did try uh, to get someone else to take him off my hands. <laughs> but it just got to the point there where I thought, look, if if there's something in this. As a journalist, I, I, as much as I don't want to do this, I'm going to have to do this. And I've got to tell you, my, I think my instincts were correct because I, I've been at it now for nearly three years or three years. It's, it's about three years now, um, just, just under. And, you know, I'm stuck in Whitechapel. Uh, I'm, I'm there every day and I, I, I can't wait to leave. <laughs> I was going to ask you what your daughter uh, thinks of of all of this um, t- 
taking her her uni uh, project and kind of um, you're making and making a hobby out of it. Well, look for, for me, it, it it hasn't been a hobby because um, in, in, you know I've I've really dedicated heart and soul uh, into my, into my research and you know what, what, whatever else you might want to say about about my book and about my research, um, you can you can clearly tell that there's been a lot of work going into it. There's been quite a bit of research, um, and and I think you know hopefully that I've, I've actually brought forward a few interesting bits and pieces along the way. Um, as, as far as my daughter's concerned, she was in year nine, so that's high school. So that's, I, th- I think, the equivalent of junior high school in the United States. So she was, she was 14. But she's been, she's, she was very interested, you know. She's really intrigued. We've, she, I've taken her with me to London on, on two occasions. Um, she was very uh, helpful in organising and we might talk about that a little later, um, organising with the William Booth College because we located a very interesting uh, file pertaining to the Victoria home. Uh, so she was she was involved with that, and um, you know she's been there pretty much all along the way. So it's it's been a very interesting experience, and she's she's got to see the East End, and she she absolutely adores the place. Uh, uh, she's um, she probably can't even. She can't wait to actually get back. Whereas I can't wait to leave. <laughs> you had mentioned um, in the um, parallels that you saw in the Australian um, convict George Hutchison with the one from Miller's Court an age similarity, where I believe that Australian Aussie George um, would have been twenty-eight years old in eighteen eighty-eight. Where um, and and I don't remember if it was from your book or from the Ripperologist article where you do point to mo- um, modern researchers suggesting he could have been around twenty eight. I'm I'm not sure uh, who that refers to, um, but there's there's some argument that George the George Hutchison and Miller's court would have been like five or six years younger than the Australian convict George Hutchison. Well, if, if you're talking about five or six years younger, you, you, maybe you're referring to Toppy, um, because I know Toppy was about uh, 22. But right. look, there, 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 there are a number of issues for me um, which bring the two individuals into, into focus. I mean, uh, the, the, the whole issue of the casual East End labourer and their uh, uh, intricate connection with the London port system and the docks, which I propose at a moment of crisis was the way with which he managed to get on board a ship um, bound for Australia during during the dock strike. There's the issue of timing. Um, in other words, uh, the, the, the fact that the murder stopped the, the committee recommendations, the, the, the immigration committee recommendations that had come down uh, in, in August. So Alice McKenzie was killed on the 17th of July, if I'm not mistaken. The, the committee report saying that, that they weren't going to touch the issue of immigration, there were, there were going to be no controls, came down on the 8th of August. And then the Ormuz leaves on the 
on the 13th of September. Um, it was actually meant to leave on the 12th, but basically they, they couldn't, they couldn't get people to work on the ship because of the, the pickets and the dock strike and so forth. So at one point they had to train down, um, some of the, uh, Orient, uh, clerks from, from head office, um, uh, professional clerks to work on the ship, uh, in the, in the guise of, um, stevedores and, and what have you just to try and keep the, 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 that manpower shortage that had resulted from, from the strike from delaying um, the, 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 the departure of the Ormuz, which ultimately it did leave. It did leave late. It didn't leave very late, but it, le- it was scheduled to leave on the 12th and it left on, on the 13th. So there's, there's, there's that, that point. There's, you know, the, the, the political questions that, that, that I went into last time, which... Sort of, you, you can spy a, a, a rationale there uh, presenting itself. But so, some of the things that I find particularly interesting about Australian, the, the Australian side of the equation, the uh, prisoner 1166, was that clearly from the photography, um, we can see that he was he was a very stout individual. Um, his exact height was five foot five and a half. Um, he was a labourer um, because it's not just the the court reporting that refers to him as, as a labourer. The official New South Wales Government Police Gazette also refers to him as a labourer. So there's 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 that. There, there there are various bits and pieces which, to me, would tie him not not just to Miller's Cork, George Hutchinson, but also some of those very interesting and very important sightings of Jack the Ripper. But for, for me, what really speaks loudly uh, is the fact that that photograph that we have of uh, Prisoner 1166 just tallies so well from uh, the illustrator's depiction on the of the Illustrated Police News of the 24th of November where Hutchinson is actually depicted. Now, uh, illustrators, newspaper illustrators in those days, uh, that was a very specialised uh, kind of a role. And for example, just to, just to give you an idea, um, when Queen Victoria went to, uh, for her big, big uh, tour of Ireland, in, I think it was in 1861 or shortly thereafter, one of the things that was noted was that all the newspapers sent their best illustrators to go along uh, to, to, to depict the various people and, and scenes and so forth that, that, that Queen Victoria was going to be meeting uh, during during that trip, so they could send um, you know all the news and all the images back to London. So my my contention is that the illustrator from the Illustrated Police News. I mean, this was a very um, specific. Um, periodical. Uh, it, it boasted, it, it, in fact, it boasted in writing of being able to depict all the twists and turns of the story and so forth. And in those, you know, very weeks leading up to Miller's Court and so forth, the Illustrated Police News was was saying, you know, you know, stay tuned, watch this space because we'll we'll bring you the the, the, the best pictures and they're accurate and you know they were making those 
general kind kind of boast. And if if you look um, at the nuance that's on display in terms of that 24th of November um, illustration re Astrakhan man, you've got to ask yourself whether the, the illustrator, being the professional that he was, working for the newspaper that he that he worked for, didn't go and track down Hutchinson to flush out as much detail, um, to, to make effectively an, an identical sketch of, of this particular individual that, that, that Hutchinson had claimed to have seen. In the process of which, um, it just so happens that we've also got Hutchinson in the picture. And that picture that we have of Hutchinson is, is, is extraordinary because if you line it up and Jonathan, I know you've got a, a copy of my book. I don't know if you've got it with you right at this moment, but if you just look on the back cover and you line up those two photos, I mean, the, the, the brows and the eyes, the, the, the chin, the, the cheeks, it's just, it's, there's, there's an extraordinary, there's an extraordinary, um, comparison between those, those two photos. But, but the thing that I find most telling as someone who, over the years, ever before George Hutchinson ever came onto my radar, I'd, I'd seen that illustration, like no doubt, you know, other people have seen that illustration and thought nothing of it. And at best, if if they thought anything, maybe it would have been something along the lines of, oh, that's just a, a, a generic background figure. Um, but two, two things I'd say to that. I've, I've actually had the, the material sent through to me from the um, Br- British Library. And you can actually tell that when we see this, this, this tiny little front page reduced down, what you can tell by um, the, that, that file that, um, that, that, that I have and, and I'm sure other people have as well, is that this, this is reduced down. So you, you can tell that quite a lot of detail has gone into this uh, George Hutchinson character. Uh, however, what I find extraordinary is that if he is indeed just a background generic figure, why would you give him that particular nose? And, and the nose on the Illustrated Police News of Hutchinson is, a, is broken or at the very least, it gives every indication of being broken. And we know that Aussie George had a broken nose because it's on his, on his police file. But if you actually look at the photo, um, you can tell that he's, that, you know, there's, there's a, a, a bump high up on the bridge of the nose, just like the, the figure in the Illustrated Police News. The, the figure in the Illustrated Police News maybe has a more pronounced dip at the tip of the nose but if you look at the side on view from the prison photos you can also see that Aussie George had quite a pronounced dip at the tip of his nose so I I, I, I just find it highly coincidental that if the Illustrated Police News George Hutchinson is just an irrelevancy and we shouldn't really waste so much time. Why, why has he got those particular features 
um, apart from any similarities, apart from any other similarities you might see between those two photos, it, it's the nose to me that says, you know, why, why would you give that, that particular nose to a generic figure? Uh, it, where it doesn't make sense. And it suggests to me that that was actually a, a proper representation and for all the other reasons that, that, that I've just mentioned, that that was actually a, an accurate depiction of um, Miller's court, George Hutchinson. And what year, remind me, um, what year the photograph of um, Aussie George was taken? Uh, I think it was in February 1897. Um, I do uh, want yes. I, I to get your um, argument against uh, George William Topping Hutchison. We don't have a photograph of him from the 1890s. The only photograph that I've seen has been like decades later. Yeah. A lot of evidence of available from census records and things like that, placing um, George William Topping Hutchison in the East End um, makes for a pretty good circumstantial case on top of the fact that his son stated that uh, his father told him that he knew one of the victims and was interviewed by the police. Um, but although with like most things, Jack the Ripper, a lot of conjecture has to be um, put into um, it to make a strong case that Toppy is the George Hutchison. Um, what makes you believe so strongly that the evidence for Aussie George being George Hutchison outweighs what we know about George William Topping Hutchison and being George Hutchison in Miller's court. I've, I've, I've written quite a bit for, for, for the Ripperologist on, on the issue right. of uh, Toppy. Um, most, recently, um, most recently in edition 160, which is the current edition. Yes. Um, I, I think the the, the signatures um, for me the, the the signatures are you know as as others have put it uh, and more more than more than uh, one or two the, the the signatures are the final nail uh, okay. in, in the topic coffin um, and you must admit though there there is some decent circumstantial evidence out there. Uh, putting aside like Sue Ironmonger's analysis of the handwriting, yeah. um, I believe um, David Knott um, has information from the family that not only Reginald Hutchison, but also Reg, Reg Hutchison's brother recounted um, stories of his father saying that he was the Miller's court witness. And um, I don't know if you've read um, any of Ed Stowe's posts on Casebook. He posts under the name Lechmere, where he discusses uh, Toppy's cousin living just within a couple streets of the Victoria home at the time of Mary Kelly's murder. And Toppy seems to have left his family after his mother died and his father remarried 
Um, and at that point, he adopts the name, the middle name Topping. He never used the name Topping until after his mother passed away and his father remarried to a much younger woman. And, um, and so by abandoning his immediate family, there's some conjecture that he could have gone to where some extended family resided, which is within um, walking distance of the Victoria home. So um, there are things like that, that kind of, you know, it's like the handwriting samples are problematic, but then you have other um, circumstances that, I mean, of, of him that, that they do kind of make it possible in my opinion, you know, um, yeah. that it's a, that it's a positive identification. Um, look, as far as I know, and, and, and as I've um, pointed out, and I, I don't, I don't see myself as the person, you know, that's, that's uh, whose, whose responsibility it is to burst the, 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 the toppy uh, uh, balloon. Mm-hmm. But, um, I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that, um, if I'm not mistaken, these these kind of uh, testimonies, uh, at the end of the day, they're all they're all hearsay. Um, when when did they hit the radar? Right, it as would have been after uh, Melvin Fairclaw's Ripper in the Royals, I believe. Yeah, Re- Reg was the point. first, and then other family members like his brother ended up um, backing up. Reggie's um, tale, yeah, from what I understand. We're, we're talking about 50 years after Toppy passed away, right. uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, and, um, you know, what, 100-plus years after events. And, you know, it, it's, all, it's all very interesting um, hearsay, I suppose, is, is, is the way you'd, uh, you'd, you'd put it. I mean, I, I don't know. Certainly, it all it all sounds very interesting. I'm also mindful of the context um, in which uh, it all came up, and and this whole thing about uh, Sir Randolph Churchill and so forth. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let other people right. sort of well, yeah, that, that's important to point out. Um, I agree. Is that you know we always hear about Reg Hutchinson's. Um, um, the part about him saying that my father said he was he knew one of the victims and was questioned by the police, but we we very rarely see the next line being, and he said it was a part of the royal uh, royal conspiracy, or something, you know. Yeah, well, I note <laughs> I, I, I note I note for the record that you're the one laughing, <laughs> Jonathan. <laughs> you're the one laughing here, not me. Um, but. You know, then there's the whole the whole question there of um, you know coming along side by side with the Abilene diaries in inverted right. commas, where you know Abilene got a very important biographical detail wrong, his own name. Um, so there 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 are these other considerations which, in my opinion, also uh, need to be um, need to be considered. But look, as far as the, the, the smoking gun for me on this question is the fact that if you compare the two toppy signatures to each other and there's a 13-year 
distance between them. There's a 13-year distance between those two toppy signatures. They are quite clearly, quite clearly, by the same hand, near replicas of one another. Now, you bring the comparison at its closest to the Miller's Court witness, and it's down to 10 years. Not 13, it's down to 10 now when we're comparing the, the closest signature chronologically to the Miller's Court witness. And you don't need to be Sue Iamunga. I, I, and I say that with the greatest of respect for the fact that she is, you know, a, a world-renowned uh, document examiner and, and she's actually taken the time to go in and have a look at this material. Uh, to me, as a non-document examiner, there, there are some glaring differences in those signatures that even a layman's eye can pick up. But that's just, that's just my opinion. That's what, that's what speaks to me. And I put it into a broader context of those other issues and so forth that, you know, sent you into fits of laughter just a few minutes ago, uh, Jonathan. And, um, I, I, I look at it with that holistic perspective as well. But by the same token, and I want to emphasise, you know, I'm not here to burst the... I don't see, my, I don't see that as my role. Um, you know, other people can go out, they can make all the arguments they want for Toppy. That's their job. That's, that's fantastic. I, I'm trying to bring forward some other evidence which I think is interesting. If people think it's interesting too, that's fantastic. I'm, 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 I'm happy to have done something that's, that's potentially positive. If people don't see it in that light, that's fine too. Um, you know, after 130 years, at, you know, what, you know, I, I don't, I don't see that, um, you know, tearing at one another's throats is actually going to be particularly helpful. Um, because we've, We've, we've spent a lot of time basically going around in circles um, and I, I think anything that comes up is, 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 is interesting. Uh, it's all, it, it, who knows where that important clue is going is to come from. So I, I don't for a second want to rain on anyone else's parade. I want you to discuss some of the events of the night of the Miller's Court murder. For, well, first I wanted to, we, we, last, um, last time we talked, um, we discussed George Hutchinson's identification of Astrakhan Man. And you made a pretty good argument that Hutchinson based his description of Astrakhan Man on earlier press reports about Leather Apron. Also, in his statement to Aberline, he indicated that he knew Mary Kelly for over three years, which would have put his friendship with Mary Kelly further back than most other, I mean, Barnett, um, you know, the people at Miller's Court, you know, this would go all the way back to when Kelly was living at Breezer's Hill. Is it your belief that George Hutchison just lied about the whole thing, including his three-year-long relationship um, with Mary Kelly? What's your take on, on that part of the statement? Yeah. 
I um I I think that Hutchison was very determined when he brought forward uh, this suspect and and this description. I think foremost in his mind was staying on message, and that message was the same as Jack the Ripper's message. If we you know pick up various other veins such that I've proposed with with my theory that he was murder murdering these women or mutilating them as per these reports that had been coming in throughout the 1880s um, in terms of the issue of the blood libel. Um, if we have a look at uh, the location of um, at least some of at, at the very least some of the murders uh, if we have a look at the events of uh, on the night of the double event, uh, Jack the Ripper, as much as he was communicating, uh, as much as he was uh, leaving uh, clues about a particular narrative, whether it was from you know shouting an anti-Semitic slur, whether it was from the the, the graffito blaming the murders on the Jews. Whether it was the nature of, of, of these atrocities, whether it was the location of these atrocities, we're talking about something that, to me, speaks of a narrative, someone with the ability to stay on message. And it's very interesting that Hutchinson's got exactly the same message, which he weaves into his, into his uh, description in, in various ways. In various ways. So, uh, to, to some degree, did, did did he really know Mary Kelly for the you know three three or so years that that he claimed her? It, it, it's it's quite possible. Um, certainly, uh, I, I've I've noticed, for example, that um, with um, with with that they they had a a mutual, they, they potentially um, had a, a mutual uh, acquaintance with um, Dan Barnett, for example, who was in eighteen ninety one was a, a lodger there at um, at the Victoria home. That's that's one thing that that's come up. Question mark over it, of course, but it's um, it, it, it's all very interesting in terms of what what can you actually take away as bona fide um, in Hutchinson's account. And, and, you know, there's just, there's just so much that just leaves you scratching your head. Um, and, 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 look, just what, one example that just, that, that just comes up. He, he, he said, for example, that he'd come, he'd gone, gone into the, the Victoria home that, that, that early morning as soon as it opened. But we know both from Jack London, uh, in terms of his, Jack London's descriptions of, of, of the, the way these lodging houses worked, and the Victoria home in particular, that uh, in the morning, first thing in the morning, out you go. That, that's the way Jack London puts it. The, the morning was not the time for arriving for your stay. The morning was the time when you get tossed out. Uh, and indeed, um, my my daughter and I came 
when we when we went and had a look at the Victoria Home file, uh, Victoria Home Number One file, um, we 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 found a, a pamphlet uh, with the rules, with the various rules of the Victoria Home, and e- even there, uh, it states that the bedrooms need to be cleared out by a particular time in the morning and so forth. So that's that's just one example of where Hutchinson's story doesn't seem to gel. So trying to, to dive into there and, and come out and saying, yeah, look, you know, I, I've found something that makes sense. Uh, you know, be my guest. Right. And the uh, press reporting at the time kind of went, I think uh, if I'm just going off of memory now, you had some newspapers saying that certain elements they, they would be very vague about it. they didn't no one ever came out and said that George Hutchison was flat out lying about everything. Um, they would kind of be a, a little safe and say, well, certain elements of his story didn't match up. But while another newspaper would still be following um, the trail as if uh, it was all everything he had said was true. So there was just this kind of a conflicting uh, reporting going on at the time. Yeah, um, I mean it's the story of the case. It's a snapshot of of the case. Um, you know, there is there's, there's all these competing um, perspectives, even at the time. Um, these different veins, and um, it's left to us 130 years after the event to try and sort them out. And it's it's not just here. Um, it's everywhere, and. You know, all, all I, I can say to that, that it helped create this, 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 this huge nebulous snowball that, that became the case. As I, as I described uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was talking to you, bigger than Ben Hur. Uh, and, and I, and I think that at, at a certain point, um, Hutchinson realized that he was up against this. And, and as much as any other consideration helped, helped flush him out. So that he could talk directly to who he needed to talk directly to, because his 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 message was out there, ensnarled and competing against all these other bits and pieces of information and and, and all the rest of it that became this 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 incredible story. Uh, that you know the story started pretty much immediately, and and it's just continued to balloon. Um, so. Yes, I, I, I realise that uh, that you know some people sort of some some newspapers were reporting uh, Hutchinson you know with a grain of salt, and there there seems to be quite a bit of uh, newspaper reportage along those lines where they say you know um, question mark here question mark there. So even even at a relatively early stage. Uh, there, there seems to have been um, some degree of uh, questioning of you know, what, what's what's going on here and, and, and whether we can take it at, at face value with this character. Or as um, one, one newspaper commented, um, it was an American newspaper, it was, I think it was the Washington Star, who, who said uh, it might be best... <laughs> It might be best to just keep an eye on Hutchinson. Right, <laughs> right. And and I thought, oh, that's 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 a very good way to put it. <laughs> uh, it was very much tongue in cheek, obviously, but um, I thought, wow, that that carried all the way across the Atlantic 
um, you know, they, they, they seem to have latched onto something. Right. Yeah. Now, is it your contention that, that Hutchison came forward in, in at the result of Sarah Lewis's testimony as reported in the newspapers or, or that he, it was just a coincidence and he, he came forward of, of his own free will outside of hearing about or uh, reading about Sarah Lewis's uh, testimony at the inquest? Yeah. Well, as I said, I, I think his prime motivating factor was to get the narrative reestablished. Um, so the time, of, so the timeline of when her testimony hit the papers and him coming forward, that that doesn't influence. Uh, you, you think that? Yes. He, he, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Look, uh, I I I think that there, there, you know, as best as we can try and and make our our best uh, estimate of what of what transpired. It, it, it would seem, and it, it, it seems a very valid argument to me, that given that he himself has put up his hand and said, yep, you know, I was there in that spot at 2.30, and, you know, Sarah Lewis has already brought forward the fact that there was, there was a suspicious character in that spot at 2.30. So he's, he's, basically, he's, he's basically fessed up. Um, so certainly I think, I, I think that's very interesting. Uh, but if, I, and look, I, 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 I drag it back, I drag it back, and I, 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 I think it's very interesting that that, uh, 24th of November Illustrated Police News depiction of Hutchinson shows him as a man of what you'd probably say is short to medium height, very, very wide uh, across the shoulders, pretty stocky looking, uh, pretty stout. And we've got that description um, along those lines, along those very lines by Sarah Lewis. We've also got the description of Cox at, at about midnight that tally very well. Um, both with the Illustrated Police News uh, illustration and with Sarah Lewis's uh, testimony, and look, it's just it's 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 just a couple of evidentiary points. They speak to me. I don't pretend that they speak to everyone, but I think it's interesting that if we accept that the illustrator from the Illustrated Police News tracked him down, and it appeared on the twenty fourth. November. So we're talking, you know, in those immediate weeks after Miller's court. I think it's very interesting that Hutchinson should be depicted wearing a Billy Cock hat. Now, yep, it was a common enough um, item of attire, but by the same token, are we going to completely overlook the fact that the last man seen entering um, Mary Kelly's room was wearing a Billy Cock hat too? I, I just think that's um, that, that that's an interesting that's an interesting point, um, and also that 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 physical um, that that physical appearance. So you know, there's, there's, there are a couple of things. He's also Hutchinson uh, also seems to have a mustache, um, from what we can gather in that in that depiction. Um, so th there there are those 
points of overlap, which I, which I think are very interesting. Remind me, what time did Cox see Mary Kelly enter uh, Miller's court with Blotchy? That was at, uh, around, uh, around midnight. Okay, because I know Cox, around mid- Cox and Prater's stories kind of contradict each other in a lot of respects around that time. Sorry, you're suggesting that that could have been Hutchison. I, I think it's very interesting um, that the last two men are seen within line of sight, essentially, of Mary Kelly's door are Hutchinson and Blotchy, and that they're both physically um, seem to have a... Uh, a, a very similar f- a physical description. They're both wearing uh, a black hat. Um, granted, uh, Cox says it's a it's a um, Billy Cox. Lewis uh, says it's it's a wide awake. But um, you know, Lewis, by the same token, Lewis's uh, d- description is is a little bit on the on the vaguer side, comparatively. And uh, I, I think it's interesting that also Hutchinson's evidence essentially overthrows Cox, um, and and that point um, is is brought up is brought up in the media that it quite throws discredit on on Marianne Cox, and and I and I wonder whether part of the rationale in terms of blindsiding the police, as much as it may have been, uh, to sort of fess up and get to the police first as a result of Lewis, whether there may have been an element of that at play, uh, Ray Cox as well. And Prater also gave a time at about 1 a.m. to 1.30 that she didn't hear any singing or see any lights on in 13 That's Miller's right. Court. So it would kind of suggest in, in your theory that by the time Lewis saw Hutchison standing in, in front of the lodging house across the street on Dorset Street, Mary Kelly was already dead. Uh, quite, quite possibly. Maybe not mutilated. Uh, maybe not mutilated, but um, quite possibly dead. I, uh, and then that see, would throw out the whole cries of murder at 3 a.m., that yeah, were well, heard I, in the court. I, I think there's reason there's reason to, to put a bit of a question mark over those uh, cries of murder, and I, I'll go into a bit of detail uh, in the book as to as to why that is. But um, the the fundamental here is that, as I see, is that Hutchinson's evidence not only overthrows Cox, but it's in contradiction to Bonds because. Granted, you know, Bond said it's, it might be a bit, uh, it might not be the easiest of circumstances to, to determine a time, uh, a time of death. But, you know, he, he, he said he's pretty certain it was sometime between one and two. Um, so Hutchinson's overthrown Cox. He's going against what Bond says. Pratter's at the entrance of Miller's Court till, till 1.30. There seems to be a build-up of other information 
which taken collectively doesn't bode too well for for Hutchins Hutchinson's truthfulness um, as as a witness. I mean that's that's something that at the very least we might be able to uh, to to say. Bond said that he he thought the probable time of the murder was one or two o'clock, and he was pretty certain, quite pretty certain in his estimation. Mm-hmm. Well, and the uh, only and, one and, that sees her outside of her room um, past, you know, between two and three o'clock is Hutchison. That's right. That's right. And indeed, you know, I, I, I realise that there's, um, you know, that Walter Dew probably doesn't have the biggest fan club out there. Um, but there, there may be occasions when he has got something interesting in a general sense to tell us. I, I, I have to allow for that possibility, and he he um, seemed to be of the opinion that uh, had, when, once Hutchinson comes forward, it, it it shook the police reconstruction of the crime, right? Um, in terms of the time frame and all the rest of it, and indeed, you know, prior prior to the arrival of Hutchinson, um, if you look at all the bits and pieces, and given the the fact that it was. It was, you know, raining and it was so cold. Um, you know, from from what Cox tell us, she was off her face with 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 the booze. Um, you know, she could barely slur a couple of words. You've really got to ask yourself. You put all of those little bits and pieces together, and they would collectively tend to suggest that, um, you know, she did, she did not go back out yeah. that night. And, and the whole, uh, the whole nature of that, that description that he puts forward, you know, with the, with the laughing and the, and the turning and then they, you know, he unfurls the whole handkerchief and, you know, it's, it's got, it's, it's got all the, all the elements of a, of a Sunday afternoon promenade, um, rather than a, a working girl supposedly out at two o'clock in the morning in, in cold, wet conditions. And we know that it, it was, you know, the, the conditions were terrible, not just from the weather reports, but because Cox, and Cox um, does strike me as, 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 as an interesting witness simply because the information that she has to bring forward, it's very matter of fact, it's very direct. She does mention the rain twice because it, it, it has a certain impact on what she has to say because it's relevant. So she keeps it to the relevant. It's not, it's not elaborate, it's not the... The, the screenplay that, that Hutchinson provides, but it's, it's relevant. Now, it's, it's interesting that for all the stuff that Hutchinson mentions, the, 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 the catalogue of minutiae that he throws into that, that, that description of his, he, he never mentions that it was raining. He, he doesn't mention that. And they were, they were out in the open at, at times and so forth. Oh, I think that's interesting too. Um, and also, when I said no one... Um, <clears throat> saw her after that i was obviously just ignoring caroline maxwell who claims to have seen her at 8 30 the following morning out on the street I, again I, I i hate to come to the defense of of, of walter dew because i i realized that um he he doesn't have great legions of fans but uh, i i tend to agree with with walter dew that um for for all that Maxwell may have some very interesting information to provide and that she comes across very well. Um, she was simply mistaken um, for, for, for the 
the the day um, that 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 she saw him. Maybe maybe that's the the, the best uh, explanation. Look, uh, Jonathan. The other thing the other thing that I wanted to mention that I find very interesting about um, the the Miller's Court atrocity was that, um, as as you'll recall, uh, last week we we spoke about uh, Tisa. Tiza Esla, and we spoke about the Ritter case and some of the dynamics um, about those cases. But um, there was a, there was a third case uh, which happened in between that in between Miller's court and after the um, after the edict came down from the Times that, that they were not going to be talking about the blood libel. And what what had happened was that there was another case that had come up in that in that window in that very short window which constituted about a fortnight, and it was the Leskow case again. It was from Austria Hungary. It was from Moravia, and um, I find interesting some some of the touchstones of that um, of of those reports because uh, they 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 mentioned that um, these two sisters who were in their late teens. Um, according to all reports, they were great beauties, um, and that they had been frightfully mutilated, frightfully mutilated. So it was just another one of those reports with all those keystones and touchstones that, that we'd been seeing in the press, uh, read the Ritter case and read the, um, the Tiz Aislar case. And so it touched on all of those. What, what happened though, because it came out, after the, the Times edict, they were very circumspect about mentioning the word Jews. But by that stage, you know, all the, uh, the you know, the the, 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 the sensibilities of English read, of, of an English readership were not going to necessarily be particularly spared given that it was just one more in a sequence of these kind of reports. It was, you know, it was too late at that point. And in, and, um, Anyway, one of the ways that they described the suspects of this uh, of this atrocity in in Moravia in in Austria Hungary was by was by saying that it had been carried out by a couple of plebeian uh, suspects, in, in other words, lower class. And of course, the the in, in terms of Tisza Eslar and in terms of Ritter, it was always lower class. It was always lower class Jews. It was you know the worst the worst lower class elements. So there, there, there was there was some more of that going on. There, there was some of that that was being spun into it without outrightly um, saying the word Jews. But what I, what I find most interesting is that that this term, the frightfully mutilated, frightfully mutilated, and the fact that one of the victims had both her breasts cut off. Now, again, you know, you might you might say, oh well, so what. You know, coincidence or what have you, but for all of that, let's just put that aside for a second. You, you, you can't you can't deny that in in that sort of fortnight between Miller's Court and the Times edict, this story came out from Leskow, and lo and behold, we have Miller's Court, where someone was literally frightfully mutilated, as per the report, and she had her her breast cut off, which none of the Previous victims that had, I, I find that I, I find that interesting. I mean, these are these are the little things that you know. I just can't 
ignore. Um, and I keep seeing these these little points. Um, it, it, call them points of evidence or, or points of coincidence or points of overlap, but I, I think they're very interesting. I also think it's it's very interesting that um, blotch has never been accounted for, just in terms of from a police investigative point of view. Blotch has never been accounted for. And, you know, I asked the question in my book, could could that conundrum of, you know, what's happened to Blotch here? Why, why hasn't Blotch ever been accounted for? Could could that conundrum be answered by the fact that Hutchinson's Blotch here? Um, so these, these, are, these are all, you know, interesting um, aspects that, you know, jump out at me. I, um, I, I've, I've discussed them in my book. I, I elaborate uh, about these points, and, and I think they're very interesting. Hutchinson, if he was blotchy, would have had to keep his d- distance from um, Miller's court, you would think, after he came forward, you know, out of fear that maybe Cox would identify him as as blotchy, well, wouldn't you think? Yes. Uh, look, the the, the, the the fact remains that, I mean, we, we've, there's no evidence that the the, the uh, Cox and Hutchinson ever ever came into contact with one another, or the investigation brought them in into contact. But you know, it could it could possibly explain uh, why uh, he waited until after the inquest. Um, alternatively, was it just you know bravado on his part? Um, potentially, if if he was blotchy, is it maybe because he was counting on the fact that uh, Cox, in those conditions at that time of night, maybe didn't get the best the best view of him. Um, in in her dis- description to the police, you know, she she mentions that uh, Blotchy and um, and Mary Kelly were a little bit further ahead of her, so that she was following essentially in their footsteps when she uh, spies them. As it, as it were, going into into Kelly's room. So, you know, there, there are there there are those um, there there are those considerations, and you know, the the fact remains that by Hutchinson bringing forward his information that places Mary Kelly on Commercial Street at a, at two o'clock in the morning, we've all of a sudden, we've changed both the chronology of the evening's events. We've also changed the location of the evening's events. And I wonder, was that too part of his intent? Um, you know, just to, 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 to confound things even more and to confuse things uh, even more and to sort of shift the focus away from his own um, his own involvement at critical moments in the timeline. Mm-hmm. So it's a question of trying to reconstruct the timeline timeline absent Hutchinson, which is which is what I attempt to do uh, in the book. And uh, he might have been arrogant and confident enough that he could have thought if it was uh, his word against Cox's, then then he had a good chance of winning out. 
Well, yes, especially, unfortunately, given um, the attitudes of the times um, and given uh, Mary Cox's uh, profession and, um, you know, she was... Uh, not not only was she next to destitute, but she looked uh, ne next to de destitute, um, according to uh, according to reports. Um, but maybe he was just counting on the fact. And and if and if he was, he 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 backed a winner in, in that in that regard. That the fact that he came that he volunteered that he came forward was going to give him an enormous. Uh, amount of latitude, uh, and really, if 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 we look at uh, these these sorts of uh, killers, these sorts of um, people that inject themselves into a police investigation uh, by way of trying to confuse things and give themselves the all clear in the eyes of the police and so forth. Today, um, police investigative teams are very well aware of them you know we've 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 got a good profile of them uh, of these sorts of of killers that do, that do these sorts of things they're recognized today um less less so the further back you go in time you know it's it's been a a relatively uh, modern process as i understand it to identify this particular kind of archetype of killer um and you know maybe maybe uh, george hutchinson was the original and it really casts Aberline in a bad light then. Um, and Ripperology, I know, tends to kind of put him on the on a pedestal of being this uh, great Victorian detective. For, for him to flub this one so massively by saying that, you know, Hutchison is to be believed. Yeah, look, the, the other thing to, to consider is that that report that Hutchinson, uh, that uh, Abilene put together, Greenlighting Hutchinson, was, was, must have been written very soon after interviewing him. Which, right. as I pointed out last time, you know, how, how did he, how did he pin down, um, Hutchinson's alibi, nebulous, this nebulous alibi, which was basically, I, I was wondering, I was, I, yes, I was at the epicenter of events, but I was wondering the streets beforehand and I was wondering the streets afterwards. Um, and it spanned a, a, a quite a, a wide geography. How did he manage to nail it down so quickly? All right. Um, and even like, we, yeah, e even um, the, the three years that he's claimed to have known Mary Kelly, I mean, the trip from Romford, you know, I, I get to wonder, like, we were talking on um, the Casebook message boards a few days ago about the whole Lipsky, um, sh the shouting of the Lipsky uh, at the Elizabeth Stride murder and how, yeah. well, Aberline said it was uh, a fact that that was uh, an anti-Jewish um, slur. And so because Aberline said it, all his higher ups backed him up on it. You know, well, if Aberline says that that's a fact, then it's a fact, right? Yeah. So by saying that, you know, Hutchison is to be believed, even though it, apparently something occurred in the days following to make elements of his story unbelievable, um, it all just kind of got swept up under the rug. In, in Aberline's defense, I think 
there's there's good evidence from Abilene himself, not to mention in, in his colleagues making comments in a more general sense, that the role that he was thrust into was absolutely exhausting uh, in terms of this particular investigation. Um, I can well imagine, and uh, I don't make excuses for Abilene in my book, but I put it into context, and I think, look, you've just had an inconclusive inquest wrap up. Everyone's baying for blood out on the streets. You know, the, the, the temperature's really, really hot. People are talking about, you know, police incompetence. You've got every crackpot under the sun coming forward. You've got good, good, good meaning people coming forward thinking that they're helping and in fact they're not. Abilene's absolutely exhausted. He's got nothing to show for it. An inconclusive inquest has just wrapped up. And, you know, in walks this bland, uh, inoffensive-looking guy that um, is offering you something that's effectively too good to be true. But I can understand you sort of grabbing for it, if only instinctively at that moment. Um, and that's not to make excuses for, for Abilene, but... I, I just think that, that there was just so much going on. There was it was just so big. This case was just so big, and the the, the leads that were pouring in were were of all all kinds of of uh, denominations. And um, you know, for 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 a, for a moment there, um, I, I think there was some kind of a misjudgment. At the very least, we can say that there was some kind of a misjudgment in, in greenlighting Hutchinson simply because, let's just hypothetically say, I, I mean, I know I, I and others argue that, that Hutchinson is in fact the killer, but let's just say it's for, the, for, the, for the sake of argument that it's not Hutchinson. Never, nevertheless, his, his statement is, is, pro, is highly problematic. And... You know, the, Abilene wears that um, for all the excuses you might want to make for him, in, and including the excuses that I make for him. Um, Abilene wears it; he wears it to this day. Um, and uh, I don't. I, I, I think he came to change his mind because, as I as I mentioned last time, there are those Paul Morgan's interviews from 1903. I think they were, where if if you read them closely, there's nothing in that that backs Hutchinson. Quite the contrary. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there's uh, one um, non-canonical murder after Mary Kelly that you believe that George Hutchinson is responsible for, and that's of Alice McKenzie, right? Yes. Um, simply because he wasn't, he was no longer in London, obviously, at the murder of Francis Coles. So you had mentioned earlier the uh, Victoria Home file. And and I know that you um you have you've researched in that file and you wanted to discuss elements of that 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 connect to the Mackenzie murder. Is that right? Yeah. Um, look, very quickly, uh, Jonathan, uh, regarding Francis Cole's eyes, I think that was in 1891, and the police right. seemed pretty convinced, even after they released John Sadler, her partner, that Sadler had something to answer for there. Um, there's also the fact that um, in terms of the, the, the way that the uh, police, the police surgeons um, 
the advice that they gave didn't quite match up very well with um, with, with with the series. Uh, there's also the geography that that that, that makes it somewhat uh, problematic. So there, there there's there are good reasons I think to 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 ex- exclude uh, Francis Coles. Uh, not not so much Alice McKenzie, and I, I find that one a very interesting one, um, amongst other reasons, because of the issue of geography, because it was just so close uh, to, to the Victoria home, and on on the note of the Victoria home, I'll just just digress uh, for a moment. Um, I've I've been able, or my daughter and I were were, were able to to view uh, the the Victoria Home Number One file uh, that's kept at the uh, Salvation Army Heritage Centre in uh, in South London, the William Booth College, William Booth College, South London, and um, what, what I I actually somewhat found it again. It was almost by accident because I had been looking to do some research into the Victoria home number two, which was the one in uh, Whitechapel Road, which given some of the sources that I'd read, I was there was some confusion in my mind because they seemed to be contradictory as to exactly when the Victoria home in Whitechapel Road, further, further to the east, further into the east end, had actually opened. Um, and I, I wanted to know whether it had opened before or after the Ripper scare, and the answer to that is it was opened later. But there was contradictory information, so I thought, okay, I'll I'll try and get my hands on um, the as much original material as I can possibly source. And you know, I've I've been very mindful of that the the, the whole time, even even when, um, for example, I've had those couple of occasions when I've referred back to the the books of others just to refresh my memory about certain arguments. I've always gone back and tried to find the, the original information which has then given me a, a, a deeper understanding and and taken me in particular in particular directions. And I can't stress that enough potentially for, for, for other researchers and to always you know, try and as much as you can double check by going back to the original stuff because there is, you, you will find contradictory material and occasionally you do pick up stuff that, that's not right. And this was one such occasion because I'd, 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 there was, I'd picked up on different, on different um, dates for the opening of the, of the uh, Whitechapel Road Victoria home anyway. I, I discovered that, um, that there was a file with a lot of original information regarding the, the Whitechapel Road Victoria home. And the, I'm, I'm a little bit of a Luddite. And, you know, my daughter set me up and I started clicking here and clicking there. Lo and behold, I discovered that they actually also, as part of that collection on the Victoria home, they also had the information regarding the Victoria Home Number One, the one in Commercial Road. Now, my my and my daughter's understanding had been that that material no longer existed, or that it had been destroyed during the war, or or something along those lines. But I I did not imagine 
that something like that was 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 still uh, out there. But it seemed, from what I could tell online, going into the um, the, the William Booth College website, there seemed to be some references to these bundles of information and so forth. But you actually had to go there um, to, to to open them up. They, they, they didn't contain any information online, but there did seem to be a little uh, quite quite an interesting array of uh, depth to to these files. So. I thought, okay, well, you know, this is the reason why I didn't want to do this in the first place. Bang, I'm going to have to go to London and have a look at this file. So um, we 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 did this, um, and um, we 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 were able to uh, view this archive from what I could tell of the physical condition of the way these files were kept. They were they were pristine, like there was most of the stuff there. I have got a very, very sneaking suspicion that it had not been open um, in decades and decades, uh, possibly more than that. Um, you know, there, there was dust and, 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 and rust powder falling out of it. It was just amazing. And so a, a, a couple of interesting, the, the, the highlights um, that from this file, because unfortunately we only had uh, several hours um, that were at our disposal, and and it's quite a bulky file, the Victoria Home Number One and Victoria Home Number Two file. Um, so it confirmed it confirmed that the Victoria Home Number Two didn't open until after um, after the Ripper scare. And what had happened was with the Victoria Home Number Two, eventually it got bought out by the Salvation Army. So when the Victoria Home Number One closed down in 1918. It would seem, or I assume, all their remaining files and so forth went over to the Victoria Home Number Two, and then later the Victoria Home Number Two, many years later, was bought out by the Salvation Army or was taken over by the Salvation Army, and so they, even though they, the Salvation Army had never had anything to do with the running of the Victoria Home Number One, they inherited the files. So that's how they ended up with the Salvation Army. But the, the, the highlights of the Victoria Home Number One file for me was that there are a couple of plans of the lower floors of uh, Victoria Home Number One, and there'd always been some conjecture about Jack London's The People of the Abyss, where is this specific um, home that he's that he's t- talking about? Is it actually the Victoria Home? And there was always a tendency to say, yeah, it, it probably is. But if you read Jack London's description and you compare it to, you know, the stairs running off straight off the pedestrian, um, and, and that, that big hall as you, you come down from street level and so forth, it leaves me in very, very little doubt that indeed the, the Victoria Home number one, if you look at it at, at the maps, at the, at the plans, um, is actually the one that Jack London described, and that's that. That was that was very very interesting. The other thing that I found there was the rules, the rules of the Victoria Home. It doesn't. It, it's undated, unfortunately. It's an undated pamphlet, and it refers to the Victoria Homes in plural. But maybe I, I suppose we can extrapolate from that and consider that it also referred to Victoria Homes one and two. 
um, that across the institutions, and in particular the the, the rule about you've, you've got to leave in the morning. Um, I think that was rule number twelve off the top of my head. I found that very interesting in terms of the discussion we've just had. And the most interesting piece of all was the uh, legal correspondence between the owner of the um, pre-converted warehouses spanning 39 and 41 of Commercial Street and their lease to Lord Radstock, who, together with a committee of other philanthropists slash uh, investors, ran the Victoria Homes one and two. And it gives us, uh, that correspondence gives us a very good picture of what the Victoria, even though it was uh, written uh, in around about 1918, um, it's uh, very interesting because it's a make good notice. So it gives you a reference back to when the Victoria home started up. Uh, and it started in 1887. I think 39 started in 1887 and then uh, 41, they expanded uh, in 1888. And it gives us a, an indication that there were toilets, uh, outhouses, WCs in the backyard area. There were uh, backyard wash houses. And I think that's interesting because potentially... If Hutchinson as Jack the Ripper, if you, if you go down that, if you're willing to accept that contention, had managed to find some back, back alley approach to the Victoria home via Castle Court, which, which fed onto, uh, 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 Castle Alley, it might suggest that it gave him a certain anonymity of movement. Um, or that he, he might have had somewhere to go and clean up if he had access to a, a, a backyard washroom or a backyard toilet. Um, there were also internal washrooms and internal uh, toilets, but this, this correspondence referencing back to 1887 and 1888 also tells us that um, there, there were these other facilities in the backyard area, and I, I think that's very interesting too. Hmm. So, um, so um, in terms of Alice McKenzie, yes. Um, well, if, if okay, so we, how do, how does that tie back in to, to to Alice McKenzie? Okay. Now, if if you have a look at the times that it would take you to walk from the murder scenes back to the Victoria home as a central as the central location, you've got a shortening of time um it, he's, he's always getting closer and closer to home um e exponentially closer to home to the point where this this last murder alice mckenzie and that and that may well reflect you know as as john douglas the fbi profiler put it put it quote uh, heating up of the investigation that um it sort of shifted his his uh comfort zone as as douglas put it or you know, to put a fine point on it, as I do in my book, that it it curtailed geographically curtailed his 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 exploits, meaning that they were always going to have to be closer to home as as things got more uncomfortable to him, um, so that he'd have quicker access and more ready access to his bolt hole to the to the point where the Mackenzie murder is, if we accept this back alley approach to the Victoria home. 
was was only a minute away. Um, and it's important in in the in the case of the Mackenzie murder because one of the things that both the police, in particular, um, Reed, and the media kept making the point: where the hell did he go? Because once Andrews um, blows his whistle, and fo- when he finds when he finds Mackenzie, um, Castle Alley and, and um, Old Castle Street. Um, are heavily patrolled, so they're they're heavily patrolled. You've got an uh, uh, an officer stationed on on the um, corner there on Whitechapel High Street since the beginning of the Ripper scare, or during the 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 Ripper scare, they 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 put a permanent positioned officer. So you've got one exit that's cut off there. When Andrews blows his whistle, you've got Badham who just made it onto Wentworth Street at the top end comes charging back down. And everyone made the point, be it the police, be it the, the, the media. The guy's vanished. Capital letters in the media, vanished. Where'd he go? And it may help it explain or make sense of the Mackenzie murder, the fact that he was able to access potentially some kind of uh, access to the Victoria home via its backyard. Um, certainly there was this little, uh, castle, um, castle court that, that, that did back onto the, the, the backyard area of, of the, of the Victoria home, which throws up the possibility, um, that that could have been in play. So it's, it, it, it's, it's all very interesting. I also find Mackenzie's murder very interesting because of the, of the, um, chronology, because of the timing. Um, basically, the, the the fact that she was murdered in on the seventeenth of July, um, you've got the committee, uh, the immigration committee re- report coming down on the on the eighth of August, and then the Ormuz leaving the, the the following month. And you know, all indications are that after Mac, uh, the Mackenzie murder, um, there was a very heavy heavy police presence. That was thrown onto the streets, uh, including um, police informers and so forth. And I and I put uh, various bits of information that I thought was very interesting, including um, an American correspondent's uh, trip around the neighbourhood with um, Inspector Moore uh, and all the people that were basically jumping out of the woodwork, left, right, and centre, and they were. They all seem to be police informants in uh, civilian guise or police officers in civilian guise. And then we've got all the memos uh, from Munro and so forth talking about how all the, the you know, these extra officers were thrown, um, that were thrown onto the street. And it, it, it put, puts pay to some of the stuff that occasionally, um, it wasn't that long ago actually, my daughter showed me something that someone had written online that basically the the police knew that Mackenzie wasn't a victim of Jack the Ripper because they they withdrew all the police contingents there immediately thereafter and they only would have taken off the police from the streets if they'd known that it wasn't Jack the Ripper's work well you know that's just not right um we we know both from surviving case records and we know from from really good Material to come out of the media that the streets were awash uh, with police after after Mackenzie and, and I speculate whether that in part may not have uh, played its role in Hutchinson's decision 
to to call it quits, that it was getting just too too hot under the collar and too close to home, uh, potentially. Um, I also think it's very... Sorry, Jonathan, go ahead. I was going to ask you if if you have the exact date that that the Ormuz sailed. It was meant to sail on the 12th of September, but because of the dock strike, um, they they just weren't able to keep the schedule. Um, they, They just didn't have the manpower. Uh, from all indications to be able to do that. And so it sailed out of port on the 13th. Um, of, of September? Yes. Yes. So her so, inquest you know, wrapped up in... Uh, her inquest was um, post started and then postponed and picked up again in like mid-August. And so she was killed in mid in like mid July, yes, on the on the seventeenth of July. Um, so and look, so I, the the inquest didn't like officially wrap up until mid August, and then George doesn't leave until mid September. Um, do you think he intended to go to Australia, and he was just waiting for his opportunity? I mean, you would think that he would get the first boat to China if it if it was available. You know what I'm saying? I'm wondering why he would have waited um, almost two months after the murder of Mackenzie to flee. Um, well, because I don't know that as, you as, could say that the police presence was getting hotter and hotter and hotter from her death up until even mid-September. Um, well, in, in terms of the police presence, we know that it had tapered off just before Mackenzie. In terms of what we've got of the of the of the case files, and in terms of what we've got from the media, it had just started tapering off um, prior to the Mackenzie murder. So there, that that may be an indication that he was sensitive to those very practical considerations. Um, but the 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 material that I've seen, um, be it from the case notes, be it uh, from the media, was that they, that they really they really made a big effort um, after Mackenzie flying the blue flag, uh, as it were, if I could put it in those terms. What what may well have transpired is is a is a combination of things. The fact that um, the, the the strike, the, the the Great London Dock strike, you know, provided him with an opportunity. Um, at the end of the day, from what we know of Hutchinson, he seemed to have been you know, essentially um, a labourer. Um, he may well have previously um, been a groom. He may well have had some kind of a military background. We, just, we don't know. There are sort of very, very vague hints along those lines. Right. But what we do know is that um, he seemed to be one of those countless number of individuals in the East End that was there to provide muscle for uh, the docks, which was the labour force, the East, the the the, the London port system's um, muscle. So you know, I speculate that that's how, <clears throat> as as a casual labourer, as so many in the East End, people in the East End were, as an East End casual labourer, potentially, um, given the relationship of that role with the docks, that. He just got a lucky break with the dock strike, 
and we know that the Ormuz, they, they were having troubles um, getting the Ormuz uh, fitted with with the requisite um, amount of, of staff that A, was required for the launch of a ship, the preparations, and B, uh, to keep it afloat once it, it left port. Um, and last time we talked, we talked about um, the fact that it was staffed by black, black legs and that it had made in international headlines and um, it had become a source of great political controversy in a way, or from, from an industrial perspective between Australia and uh, the United Kingdom. But, uh, Jonathan, I'm also, I'm also mindful that there, there are various arguments that occasionally you come across. Um, against um, Mackenzie's candidacy, um, which I, I don't particularly find overly convincing, or rather the, 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 the arguments that are put up are, you know, it's easy enough to put up counter-arguments because, for example, one, one of the things that's, that's often cited is what Phillips had to say. And for all that the the, um, the attack to the throat was was savage um, and hit down to the bone, um, which would would tend to suggest um, something along the lines of the previous year. Um, we've also got Dr Bond saying that he believed that it was part of the series. We've also got Munro saying something along those lines, and in terms of his actions importantly, would suggest that, you know, Munro wasn't taking any chances. Um, and we've got Phillips himself who's saying, I, I don't pretend that if we look at this case more broadly, if we look at all the other issues that are at play, um, that it wasn't, it, that it could well have been the, the, the guy from last year. Um, in fact, those, those arguments are near overwhelming or words to that effect. He may not have actually said near overwhelming, but um, something very, very similar to that. Um, mm -hmm. So even, even Phillips, while saying that on purely anatomical grounds, he's, he's not entirely convinced that this is the same murderer, he then, he then puts it into context and says, well, there's a lot of evidence to suggest, you know, beyond the medical that, you know, I have to concede, um, would, would suggest that, that, that it's the same individual. The other thing is, uh, I've, I've also come across um, the, 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 the mutilations that, that, that were suffered um, by, by Mackenzie being referred to as scratches. But there's two, two different sets of, um, of um, cuts that are at issue here. There's, there's the uh, a cut to the abdomen, and then there's the, the where... where um, Phillips refers to the scratches. These were where he tried to basically cut the underwear or the garments so that he could free up the the, the, the flesh to, to, to divest it, um, as it were. So those, those scratches, as far as the autopsy, they're very clearly explained with a particular function um, that was seeking to be achieved. Those scratches have got nothing to do with the with, with with the bigger picture of the injury suffered 
by Mackenzie. But the other thing that needs to be said is if we look at the timeline of how this murder took place, if we look at what was said at the inquest, if we look at what was said in the media, there seems to be quite a strong suggestion that the, the murderer was not able to, uh, you know, go about his business as he wanted to and that he was, in fact, interrupted. Um, and I, I think I may have latched on to the reason why that happened because... Um, one of one of the officers that that uh, came along was not actually a beat policeman. Um, he was on a roving commission. I think, and I think that may have been Batten. And there may have been some mix-up in the killer's understanding of of how that beat of how those beat policemen were coming through and the timing. So I think when when he saw. Um, Batam come through, he mistook him for a beat policeman. But Batam was not a beat policeman. He just happened to be checking in on, on constables under his command. And he happened to have come through at that moment. And thereby the miscalculation that was made. Um, and he, he probably thought he had more time up his sleeve. Instead, what he got was a couple of minutes later, um, Andrews uh, appearing out of the dog leg bend. So I, I think all of these considerations are, are very interesting ones. Well, Stephen, I'd like to thank you for coming on one more time for this one-on-one -on -one interview. I really appreciate it and enjoyed talking to you again, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. I did, Jonathan. It was lovely, lovely being with you and your listeners today. Well, thank you. And again, I encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of False Flag, or its predecessor, Jubater. And I'll also repeat what I said last time, that it is an excellent book. So, Stephen Sinise, thank you again for being on the show. You're very kind, Jonathan. Thanks. Thank you again to Stephen Sinise, the author of False Flag and Jubater, for another fascinating discussion. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper, East End history, and Victorian Edwardian crime. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, you can contact us on the Casebook message boards or find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast. I would like to thank everybody for listening. And we'll see you next time.